to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 41, as we follow along with today's lesson. And also during the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, it's still quite hot. Uh, And thus, they chose the Feast of Passover, and every year they would come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, he probably had already been bar mitzvahed, um, the son of the covenant, or son of the law, uh, because when he was 12 years old, he was in the temple, and... uh, He was discussing the scripture with the teachers. Now, that would not be allowed until he had gone through the bar mitzvah. Whether or not he was bar mitzvah in Jerusalem, in the temple, or in the synagogue in Nazareth, we're not told. But when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days... As they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Now, some think that that's quite strange. How is it that, you know, he could stay back in Jerusalem and they not know it? Well, they traveled with with family, with relatives. And you know how little 12-year-old boys are. You know, they, they have their own agenda uh, and uh, when I hike with my grandsons who are about that age, I mean, they go five times as far as I do. They're up the hills and down the hills. They're, they're always taking all of these side things, you know, and I just sort of keep plodding along on the path, and they, they keep crossing back and forth, and I see them, you know, on occasion. But you know that they're keeping an eye on you, and... And uh, so uh, traveling in in large companies, uh, there would probably be uh, several hundred people who would be coming from Nazareth for the feast. And so the big company starts to move off, and you just figure, well, he's with some of his cousins playing around. And, uh, you know, come evening, he'll find us and... uh, So when evening came and Jesus didn't show up, then they began to inquire among the relatives. You know, have you seen Jesus? No. Well, I thought he was with you. No, no, we haven't seen him all day. So they were, and we're told that they supposed that he would have been in the company. He was somewhere with the crowd, they figured. 
And they had gone a day's journey. And then they sought for him among their relatives, the kinsfolk, and among their acquaintances. Figured he was one, one of his boyfriends, you know. And so when they did not find him, they turned back again to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came to pass that after three days, now don't you know they were frantic? Put yourself in their shoes, you parents. You know, when the kid disappears for a while and you get frantic, you want to call the police and, and everything else. And then when they show up, you want to beat them, you know. I mean, you just... <laughs> because you're so, you've been so torn up emotionally, you know, that you're, you're angry, you're upset. And it came out to pass after three days they found him in the temple. And he was sitting in the middle of the doctors, that is the doctors of the law, both hearing them and asking them questions. Now, he had the right to do that as having been bar mitzvahed. He had now entered into the, the place where he was held responsible for his own actions. And uh, he had the right to sit there and listen to them and also to ask questions and to answer their questions. And so here he was, sitting among these teachers, these doctors of the law. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and at his answers. They, they, they couldn't believe uh, the understanding that he had and the answers that he was able to give to them. And when Mary and Joseph saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, and you can hear it, Son, why have you dealt thus with us? Behold, your father and I have sought thee sorrowing. We thought maybe you were dead, you know. How could you do this to us? Now, there are those who point to this scripture as a refutation to the virgin birth of Jesus because Jesus, I mean, that Mary refers to Joseph as your father. How's, and so your father and I have sought thee sorrowing. It's quite possible that Mary has not yet told Jesus of the circumstances of his birth. And she perhaps is waiting until he is older, to tell him. Figuring that he just figured that Joseph was his father, it's quite possible she had not yet told him otherwise. But Jesus answered her, and he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Did you not realize that I must be about my father's business? Your father has been where I've been about my father's business. And suddenly Mary realizes the little kid knows. 
You see, he doesn't acknowledge Joseph as his father. I've been about my father's business. And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. But he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them, but his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. Now, here we have all that is told of us of the life of Jesus from 12 years to perhaps 30 years old. You see, in one verse we are told concerning the earlier period of his life, he grew, waxed strong in spirit, he was filled with wisdom, the grace of God was upon him. Now we are told for the next uh, 18 years that he was there in Nazareth and subject unto them. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, grew up into manhood, and in favor with God and man. He was popular. He had become very popular. And he had the favor of God and man. So that sums up an 18-year span of his life. Now, when we see him again, it'll be some 18 years later as he begins his public ministry as we get into the third chapter of the book of Luke. Um, well, actually, we, we get into his baptism and then chapter 4, the actual ministry of Jesus. Now, in chapter 3, you're going to get a lot of names that you're going to have difficulty with uh, pronouncing them, much less understanding them. As we have here in chapter 3, the genealogy of Jesus back to Adam. Very interesting. Uh, the genealogy that carries us from Mary back to Adam. It is interesting to note the contrast in the genealogy of Luke with the genealogy of Matthew. Because though they both go back to David, they come from a different line. Joseph's genealogy from David passes through Solomon and comes from a different family line than that of Mary's. Mary, when you get to David, you have the son of David, Nathan, and her genealogy follows from the son, Nathan. And it is quite significant that we have the two genealogies and that we notice the difference in the family line from David onto Christ because it's very significant to other biblical prophecies. And as we get into the third chapter and we look at the genealogy, uh, we will point these things out for you. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 3 as we continue our journey through the New Testament and through the entire Bible. 
Now, Luke gives to us six dating factors for the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. He tells us, first of all, that it was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, we mentioned this morning that Tiberius Caesar was described as cruel. He was described as licentious. He was an evil man. And uh, he began to reign in the year 14 A.D., The 15th year of his reign actually began on the 19th of August in the year 28 A.D. So sometime between the year 28 A.D. and 29 A.D., John the Baptist began his ministry. Later on in this chapter, Luke will tell us that Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years old. We know that John the Baptist was uh, a few months older than Jesus, uh, maybe a half a year or so older than Jesus. But uh, Jesus began his ministry when he was about, not, not exactly, but about 30 years old. Not only was uh, Tiberius Caesar the emperor of Rome, But Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Now when Herod the Great died in about the year 4 B.C., and here is an interesting thing. Uh, We know that Herod the Great was uh, alive at the birth of Christ. And so uh, he died in 4 B.C., which places the birth of Christ somewhere around the year 6 or 5 B.C., When they established uh, the calendar, the man who was given the commission to establish the calendar in working out the dates, it used to be that the Roman calendar was dated with the beginning of Rome. But then when Christianity became powerful uh, and the Roman emperor ordered a new calendar, uh, the... um, man that was ordered to do it made a mistake as far as the date of the birth of Christ. And the idea was to date the new calendar with the birth of Christ, but he missed it by a few years. So it gives you a little, you know, kind of a discrepancy there. But it isn't a biblical discrepancy. It's one of man, and that's very common. So... uh, Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. When Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided to his three sons. Uh, The Philippi had the northernmost part of the kingdom, Syria, and in the upper areas of uh, the Galilee, uh, he built Caesarea Philippi. Uh, which is right in the base of Mount Hermon, just up the north of the country, headwaters of the Jordan River. Uh, Antipas 
had the area around the Galilee. And Archelaus, his son, was given Edom and Judah and Samaria. But Archelaus was such a evil kind of a ruler that the Jews petitioned Rome and he was deposed and the Roman government sent Pontius Pilate to be the governor over Judea in the place of Archelaus. And he governed in Judea from 26, 25, 26 A.D. to 37 A.D. Now it is interesting that uh, in secular history for a long time, they found no account of Pontius Pilate. And you know, there are people who spend their life trying to prove that the Bible is not the Word of God. It's not the inspired Word of God. And so they'll jump on every little thing to try and prove that there is some discrepancy, some error, uh, in order that they might disprove the inspiration of the Scriptures. And for a long time, those men who are really enemies of the Word of God uh, jumped on the issue of Pontius Pilate and they made a big case out of there's no thing in, in history, no records of history concerning Pontius Pilate. The whole story is just a myth. It's all made up, you know, and, and uh, he is just a mythological character. And uh, there are many people that bought into this until they were doing some archaeological diggings around uh, Caesarea, uh, there on the coast, and uh, here they found this stone with the inscription of Pontius Pilate and so forth. And uh, so, uh, again, the critics proved to be wrong, and the Bible stands right, and they sent this to the British Museum. They have a, a, a copy of it to the present day in Caesarea, and you can see the copy of the stone, the actual stone today is in the British Museum. But the name of Pilate on it and thus confirming that Pilate uh, was the governor. Uh, he reigned in Caesarea. During the holidays, he would come to Jerusalem uh, and bring a company of uh, Roman soldiers with him because it was during the holidays that the uh, national spirit was very high among the Jews and more tendency towards revolt. So that's why we find him in Jerusalem uh, when Jesus was brought before him uh, to be judged. So Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. Tetrarch means ruler of a fourth part, literally, but it was changed, and the word tetrarch just means governor. He was the governor of the Galilee region. This is the Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, uh, the one who we are told a little further down in the verses here, 19 and 20, that he was the one who imprisoned John the Baptist uh, because John spoke against his uh, marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and she became angry with him and uh, urged her husband to imprison him and then, of course, later uh, asked for his head 
uh, the head of John the Baptist. And so this is the Herod who was the Tetrarch of Galilee. He ruled in that area from 4 B.C., the death of his father, unto the year 39 A.D. His brother Philip, we are told, was the governor over Iduria, the northern portion up into Syria. He reigned from 4 B.C. to 33 A.D. Uh, as far as uh, Lysanus, we don't really know much about Lysanus, uh, who was the tetrarch of Abilene. But we are told that Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. Now, here's an interesting situation in history where you had two high priests. Actually, uh, Annas was the older, he began his high priesthood at the year 7 A.D., and he was the high priest until 14 A.D. But he angered the Roman government. And so the Roman government replaced him with one of his sons after another. And there were actually four of his sons uh, who for a time were appointed by the Roman government as high priests, but all four of them sort of came into ill repute under Rome. And so finally his son-in-law, Caiaphas, uh, was a collaborator with Rome, and so he was finally appointed by the Roman government as the high priest. Uh, he was a political appointee of, of Rome. And as such, not really recognized by the Jewish people. But they did recognize Annas. And so Annas was in the minds of the Jews still the high priest. Though the actual office was being fulfilled by Caiaphas, the Roman appointee, but the very fact that Rome had a part of it made the Jews angry, and they really didn't recognize Caiaphas as their high priest, but they recognized Annas, and thus he was still sort of the man, the power behind the office, and thus you have an unusual situation where there were two high priests at the same time. And so it was at this time in history, around the year 28-29 A.D., that we read that the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. The word unto is the translated from the Greek word hippi, which is literally came upon him. There was an anointing of God that came upon his life. Now, he probably, his parents who were very old when he was born, probably died very early. I mean, he was probably quite young when they died. And he probably, when he was about 20 years old, moved to the wilderness to just sort of 
wait upon God. You see, at 20 years, he should have began his priestly ministry. He was the son of a priest, and thus, at 20 years, they began uh, their duties as priest. But instead of going to the temple and doing the priestly duties, he went to the wilderness and was there probably for about 12 years as he was just uh, waiting upon the Lord, opening his heart unto God. And the word of God, we read, came upon John, the son of Zacharias, there in the wilderness. And he came unto the country round about Jordan. So uh, down by the Jordan River, not very far from Jericho, uh, he began his public ministry as he was preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, baptism was a Jewish rite. When you proselyted into the Jewish faith, you were baptized into the Jewish faith, and it, it signified your uh, becoming now a Jew. The old uh, identity is dead. You now become a Jew uh, through baptism. John was preaching that baptism was for the repentance of sins and coming now a new life in the Spirit uh, as you would now uh, be cleansed through your sins, uh, through repentance and through baptism. So it was called the baptism of repentance. It means a changed life, uh, much as it does in the Christian realm, where it is the burying of the old life of the flesh and the beginning of the new life of the spirit. It's a change, and it signifies a changed life. The old life is dead. It's buried. Uh, there's now a new life that we intend to live. Uh, a new life after the Spirit. So he was uh, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And uh, Luke says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. When a king was to visit a part of his realm or domain, the couriers would be sent out in advance to prepare the way for the king. The people would be commanded to repair the roads, straighten out the crooked places, fill in the ditches, the holes, chuck holes, uh, to level out the steep areas and to smooth out the rough places in order that the king might be able to travel in ease and in comfort through the area. You don't want the king being jostled around, so smooth things out, straighten out the crooked paths and, and fill in the valleys and bring down the steep areas that they might prepare the way for the king. 
And uh, thus, John the Baptist was declaring that the king is coming. Prepare for the coming of the king. And in the uh, taking of the symbolisms, uh, he, there, there's the application to the person's personal life. And that is making the crooked paths straight. <laughs> there are people who are guilty of doing a lot of crooked things. And what he is saying is, straighten out your life. Don't live a crooked life anymore, but straighten out your life. The valleys are depressions on the landscape. And, and this is not the time for depression. The king is coming. It's a time for joy and rejoicing. And so uh, there, he's, he's telling them uh, to prepare by having a heart that is filled with rejoicing and praises for the coming of the king. The high and lofty places are those areas of man's pride where he is lifted up and exalted and he's saying, come on down. Take down that pride by which a person is lifted up. And of course, making the rough places smooth. And in all of our lives, there are still those rough places. And uh, I'm certain that uh, all of us are aware of the rough places in our lives and we seek the Lord to smooth them out. Because we want the Lord to come. We want to walk with him in comfort. And, and thus, we need to prepare for the coming of the Lord. Um, Amos cried unto the people, prepare to meet your God. There are so many people who are totally unprepared to meet the Lord. You dare not meet the Lord in your sinful state. You must come and ask forgiveness and receive that forgiveness, preparing your heart that because the Lord is going to come again. And the king is coming. The, the message of John the Baptist uh, was very relevant for that day, but it's relevant for the day in which we live. In those days, there was political corruption. Tiberius Caesar was a horrible man, extremely corrupt. And, and the political system was just corrupted because of that. The religious system was corrupted. Annas and Caiaphas were Sadducees. They were uh, materialists. They were the humanist. And they, they looked at religion as a way of profiteering off of people. They were sort of like some of the TV evangelists. Uh, <laughs> that, you know, they, they look at it as, as a means of just uh, taking advantage of people who are wanting God and seeking God and, and promising miracles. If you'll just send in your dollar, you'll get the little carpet upon which he knelt and, you know, a miracle will happen and th this kind of stuff, you know. And, uh, and so these men had learned ways to profiteer off of religion. And, and thus the whole religious scene was messed up and 
and it was corrupt. And so uh, it, it was a time of spiritual and moral chaos. Uh, Josephus, of course, speaks of, of how uh, in Jerusalem, when it was under the siege of the uh, Roman troops uh, led by Titus, how desperate was the situation within Jerusalem, the gangs, uh, the anarchy, the, the gang wars, and, and how that more Jews were killed by their fellow Jews than were actually killed by the Romans. And uh, it, was, it was a time of just chaos. And in that time, the Lord came to bring order. Uh, and, and John is saying, prepare for the Lord. And certainly today, we see a, a, a political chaos. We see religious uh, chaos. And uh, the message of John is extremely relevant for today also. Because he said, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The coming one will bring the salvation of God. His name will be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. And all people will see the salvation of God. Later, John, uh, the gospel writer, tells us that uh, John the Baptist was standing with his disciples when Jesus passed by and John said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the earth. And the disciples left John and began to follow Jesus. And uh, so uh, the, the world is going to see God's salvation. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. I mean, <laughs> I, I love this. He's a fiery guy. And, and he... Um, Reminds me a lot of Romaine. Uh, because here a multitude comes to be baptized. Oh, and let me just make this plain for you that are listening on tape and on radio across the country. Romaine isn't my wife. Uh, we had some people come to Calvary one time and uh, they were uh, being shown around the church. They'd, been listening to us on the radio, and, and uh, they finally said, well, we'd like to meet your wife, Romaine. And I said, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> because they had heard me mention him, you know, on, on occasions, and uh, sort of on occasions like this. Um, and, uh, but um, here they came forth to be baptized, and he said, O oh, generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, very direct, very straight. Uh, you know, who, who moved you? Uh, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And, and he calls to them for action. Uh, bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. In other words, it isn't just coming. And, and it's interesting that whenever there is a, a move of God, there are those who are genuinely moved by God and respond. And then there are those that just come because there's a crowd. Just because there's a lot of people doing it. 
And, and there isn't a, a real true commitment, a real true repentance, but it's just, well, everybody's going, you know, it's the thing to do, and it becomes the thing, and so they just sort of follow on. But it isn't something that is genuine in their own heart. And so John is sort of addressing these, because generation of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruits that are worthy of repentance, that really demonstrate that you have repented. There is a great difficulty many times with a person who has developed a pattern in life of doing things that are very detrimental, say in a marriage, their attitudes and, and, and their whole demeanor is destructive in a marital context. Uh, the husband is always angry, always upset, always uh, downing his wife, always negative. And, and she finally has her fill of it. And she says, I don't need to live the rest of my life like this. And, and she finds an attorney and files for divorce. And then he comes and he's devastated because she's filed for divorce and she won't talk to him. When he calls her on the phone, she just hangs up. And, and so he'll say, please call her. She, she respects you. She'll listen. Tell her I've changed. And, and, and I'm a different man. I've changed. Well, yeah. For a whole two days, you're a different man, you know. Uh, but she won't believe it. You see, what they want to see is some fruit of the change. And that's basically what John was saying. Let's see some evidence that proves that changes have actually been made. And that takes sometimes a period of time. You see, if you've been a long time, years, in a particular uh, kind of a bent, it's awfully hard to believe that you have changed. Now, I do believe that you can change. I believe that that's what the gospel is all about. I believe that there can be an immediate, drastic change in a person's life through uh, the entering of Jesus Christ. That's what salvation in the gospel is all about. And I have seen these dramatic changes that do take place when a person truly accepts the Lord. But a lot of times you need just a little space to see if the change is genuine or not. And so John is saying, let's see the fruits. Let's see the evidence that changes have been made. Bring forth the fruits that are worthy of repentance. And don't just say, well, we are the children of Abraham. Don't, don't rest uh, upon your uh, relationship, uh, your nationality, because the Jews sort of felt that because they were Jews, they were saved. Much like a lot of people in the United States, because they're U.S. citizens, you know, they're Christians. And uh, it, it's not so. 
And therefore, don't say, well, we have Abraham as our father, because God is able from these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Uh, So uh, he declares that axe is now laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, which brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast in the fire. And the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? Now, his, his message brought conviction. Uh, you're to make the crooked path straight. You're to bring down the mountains and the hills. You're to fill in the valleys, and you're to make the rough places smooth. You're to bring forth fruit that demonstrates that you've really changed. And if you don't bring forth fruit, you're going to be cut down. Cast into the fire. I mean, it's, it's either, uh, you know, repentance and change or, or you're, you're, you're through with. So uh, they asked him, what shall we do then? And he answered and said unto them, if you have two coats, give to him that has none. And if you have meat, do likewise. In other words, Consider the poor and the needy. Don't be self-centered. Now, oftentimes, the depressions that people experience come from self-centeredness. It's because you're constantly thinking about yourself and relating everything to yourself. You're not happy with yourself. You're not happy with your condition. You're not happy the way people are treating you. You're not happy with your job. And it's and it's me, me, me. I don't like this. I don't like that. This is hurting me. This upsets me. And you're into yourself. And, and as I said, if you think about yourself too much, you're bound to get depressed. Uh, every time I start thinking about me, I get depressed. Uh, there are a lot of changes I'd like to see uh, if, if I could remake me. Uh, but uh, a person who is into himself gets depressed. So the people said, what should we do? He said, well, get out of yourself. Start thinking about others. If you have two coats, give one away. If you have extra meat, give it away. I mean, uh, start living for others and considering others and thinking about others. A great way to get out of yourself is to Uh, begin to minister to others. Then there came also the publicans to be baptized. And they said unto him, Master, what shall we do? Now the publicans were the tax collectors, some of the most hated people in the land. Uh, They were considered by the Jews traitors. Uh, They were collaborators with Rome. And The tax collectors were over a certain territory and the Roman government would levy a certain amount of tax for that territory and it was the duty of the tax collector to collect the amount that Rome required for that particular territory. Say Orange County, there would be the tax collector and he would have to Uh, The Roman government would say we want so much taxes from Orange County and it would be his duty to deliver to Rome each year that amount of tax that Rome had uh, considered the county should be paying into the Roman government. However, 
the Roman government gave a bonus to the tax collector in that once he had delivered to Rome all of the taxes that they required, anything that he could collect over that amount, he could keep personally. And so they were noted to be cheats and to be shysters and and to actually uh, push people uh, and overtax people, overassess their goods, and uh, thus they were hated by the... They were wealthy people, but they were hated extremely by the people because they were so crooked. So they said to John, what shall we do? And he said, exact no more than that which is appointed you. In other words, don't try to raise the bonuses by crooked taxations and uh, falsely uh, assessing the goods of the people, but be honest, be fair in your practices. And then the soldiers likewise demanded of John, saying, and what shall we do? He's asking, bring forth fruit. All right, what shall we do? Well, the fruit of of the change is thinking about others, giving to others. The fruit of the change is not cheating people anymore. And to the soldiers, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Uh, And so... um, just uh, you've been given authority and authority so often lifts a person Uh, you become uh, arrogant with authority Uh, you've got the power and you're going to exercise and show people that you have the authority and power and oh government to me is a pain uh, because you give some of these people a little power, and they just make life miserable for everybody else. Have you gone to try and get a building permit lately? Uh, You know, it's just terrible the things that you have to go through to do anything anymore Uh, because people have been given a little authority and a little power. And and a lot of times people, uh, well, (laughs) anyhow, he's just saying to them, look... (laughs) You know, don't misuse your authority. Um, And the people were in expectation because of the ministry of John. They were excited. There's something happening. You see, the Lord hadn't spoken for about 400 years from the time of Malachi Unto the time of Zacharias, the Lord had not spoken. And now God is speaking and God is beginning to move and and they recognize that the word of God is upon this man. The anointing of God is upon his life. And they're drawn, they're hungry for a true move of God. And, And they're drawn down there to the Jordan River where this fellow who is, is, is not polished, he's not wearing a, a suit, a three-piece suit, and uh, he doesn't have white shoes. I mean, this guy is he's rugged, he's rough, he's, 
He's a very ruddy individual coming out of the desert, uh, eating locusts and wild honey, and uh, yet there's, there's something there that is attracting the people. And he's very direct, very straight, calling them to repent, baptizing people, and uh, there's a move that is taking place. And the people are in a spirit of expectancy. Something's happening. God is moving. And all men were musing in their hearts concerning John, whether he was the Messiah or not. Could he be the Messiah? You know, uh, there's an anointing on his life. There, there's something happening. People are being attracted and drawn. Could he be the Messiah? But John answered this musing by saying unto them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So he's, to the musing, is he the Messiah? No. There's one who is coming after me. He's mightier than I am. I'm not really worthy to untie his sandals. And he's going to baptize you, not with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner. But the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Now, in those days, uh, you know that when you harvest wheat, that it has a husk around the kernel. And that husk is very unpalatable. It doesn't dissolve in your mouth. It'll choke you. It, it's it's uh, hard and, and, and sort of... Uh, stiff and thorny almost. And, and thus, when they would harvest the wheat, they would put it out on the floor and then they would walk on it and, and trample it uh, to break the husk away from the kernel. And then they would sometimes be on a top of a hill and they would throw the wheat into the air, and the chaff, uh, or the, uh, this husk, is light, and, and the wind would blow it away. And, and just the wheat would fall back down on the floor. Or if they didn't have a windy place, they would take a fan, and they would fan the wheat and blow the chaff off with the fan, and uh, thus just the wheat would be left. And so the idea was the separation of the chaff from the wheat, the chaff which was worthless and was burned. To get rid of it, they'd just burn the chaff, but the wheat uh, was what they were really interested in. And so as John is talking about Jesus, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire.
We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on baptism in fire. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Luke 2 through 3 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, thank you for this beautiful story that always thrills our hearts every time we read it, every time we think about it. The story of your love, loving us so much that you sent your only begotten Son, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, on the cross for our sins. Lord, we pray that we'll never lose that sense of awe and wonder as we read the story and as we think of your birth in a lowly stable placed in the manger. But there lies the Son of God the Savior, the Messiah, God in human flesh. O Lord, our hearts can hardly conceive, but we bow and worship before you. Help us, Lord, that as we go out and we live in this world, that we might share, as did the shepherds, the things which we have seen and heard of the glory of God and the fulfillment of his promises. In Jesus' name we pray. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. It is my great pleasure to present Pastor Chuck's commentary on the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles is an open-ended book. Jesus continues even to the present day to work in the lives of people throughout the world through those who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. This book also includes a special foreword written by Pastor John Corson. We studied the book of Acts, but we never saw the book of Acts. 
but we were seeing the moving of the Holy Spirit. Calvary Chapel family, may you always be known as a people who pray in Jesus' name, that it would be Jesus Christ, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. May the Jesus movement continue on. To order a copy of Pastor Chuck's book, The Acts Commentary, please call the word for today at 1-800-272-9673 or visit us online to read a sneak preview of the book by visiting thewordfortoday.org.